I, I want to read you a, a story that I ran across this last week uh, about a, well, it was written by a pastor as one of uh, a sermon illustration that he had had uh, when he was preaching. Uh, and he, it, it was called Back to Reality. He said, it was two o'clock in the morning, freezing cold, and we were huddled together in the middle of the Sinai Desert. Uh, waiting in an empty lot behind St. Catherine's Greek Orthodox Monastery. The plan was to leave in the middle of the night so that we could arrive at the top of the mountain just in time to see the sunrise. This sounded very romantic in the tour book, but now in the pitch black dark with an icy wind blowing, it didn't seem so romantic anymore. Finally, the men with the camels arrived. Each of us were assigned a camel and a guide. We each climbed aboard our very own camel and started up the mountain one by one. My wife, Katie, was in front of me, and the last thing I saw was Katie looking back as she disappeared into the darkest, blackest night I have ever seen. My Bedouin camel guide introduced himself, and as we set off, I was enveloped by that darkest night that I have ever experienced. Slowly, my eyes began to adjust, and in front of me was the silhouette of this grand desert mountain. Upon the mountain was a faint zigzag of a line. This line was a few hundred people, either walking or riding camels up the switchback that wound its way up the mountain. At every turn of the switchback, there was an ancient stone hut glowing with a small campfire within it. It was amazing, the pastor says. Here we were riding camels up this ancient mountain, that that most people believe to be the same mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. The sense that that I might be traveling up in the same footsteps of Moses was awe-inspiring. Something significant was happening. I felt like I was being transported back to the Bible times. Just me, my camel, and this ancient biblical mountain. And then as we passed that first stone hut, the Bedouins inside called out, to the passers-by, Kit Kat, Baby Ruth, ice-cold Coca-Cola. And immediately he was just a tourist on a camel because back to reality, it kind of lost the significance at that point once you brought the profane into what was supposed to be the sacred. Mountains are significant, aren't they? I mean, I I love living in this area of the world to be able to to look at and see the the Cascades and... uh, uh, just, just to see the beauty, the majesty of those. Uh, you, mountains are significant. You, you don't pack up the family and drive several hours down to Southern California just to, to visit Magic Valley. No, you, you go to Magic Mountain, right? You, you don't stand in line for three and a half hours at Disneyland to ride the ride space sidewalk. No, that, that just doesn't do it. You, you don't cherish those building top experiences in your life, do you? Uh, In The Sound of Music, the advice was not to climb every sand dune. John Denver did not praise rocky rooftop high. See, mountains are significant. They've made their way into our vocabulary, our vernacular, our understanding, and and our experiences as humans because they are so amazingly huge and significant. Today, uh, there is a story that I want to tell you about the mountain of the Lord. Now, doesn't that sound pretty impressive? The mountain of the Lord. It comes from the Old Testament prophecies of uh, found in two places, one in Isaiah 
chapter 2, the, the, the passage that Pastor Andy read to us today. And there in Micah 4 are echoes of that same prophecy. And though these prophets, Isaiah and Micah, they were speaking of the Temple Mount primarily, their prophecy actually extended much further into the future as well as reached back into the beginning of their faith. And that's where our flannel graph story begins today. Steve, um, are we going to be able to see it right here or should I pull it over? Okay, cool. We got the light on it? There was a man named Abram, an interesting name because Abram means exalted father and turns out Abraham at 75 years old had not had a child, could not have a child because his wife Sarai was barren, could not have any any children at all. But one day God showed up and said, Abram, Abram, I want you to leave your hometown, your father's family. And I want you to go to a place that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation. He says, look up at the stars. If you can count the stars, then you'd be able to count your descendants. Your your descendants will outnumber the, the number of stars, Abram. The Bible said that even though he was old and had not had a child for 75 years and his wife was barren, it says that Abram believed God and God counted it to him as righteous. Well, 24 years later, actually 25 years later, when Abraham was 100 years old, Abraham and his wife Sarah did have a baby boy, and they named him Isaac, which meant laughter, because when Sarah heard that she was going to have a baby in her old age, at 90 years old, she laughed, and they remembered that, how they laughed and how that brought great joy to them to finally have a child. And so they named him Laughter, or Isaac. Now we have to fast forward several years into the future of the story, where the Bible tells us that once again, the Lord came to Abraham a second time. And this is now when we begin to call him Abraham, which means father of many people, a father of a multitude, father of many The Lord came to Abraham a second time and said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And then God said, I want you to take Isaac, your son, whom you love, and I want you to take him up to the mountain, and I want you, and here we have Isaac by this time. He says, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. The child of promise. The the one that God said that through Isaac, Abraham would become the ancestor of many, many, many people. Abraham did what he was told. He saddled up the donkey. He had the wood. He had some servants. And he took the boy with him. And they traveled up to the foot of the mountain. And while they were there, He told the servants to go ahead and stay behind with the donkey. And he laid the wood for the sacrifice upon Isaac's back. And he and the boy continued up the hill. At this point, Isaac says to his dad, Dad, I see that we have the knife. I see that we have the wood. But where is the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham told Isaac, the Lord himself 
will provide the lamb, son. And as they left the the servants, Abraham said, we will be back. We're going to go up to the mountain to worship, and then we will be back. When they got to the top of the mountain, Abraham built an altar. And he put the wood on the altar. And then it says that he bound Isaac, hand and foot, and then placed him on the altar. And he raised the knife, ready to do as the Lord had commanded him to do. But before he could bring that knife down, the Lord sent an angel who shouted to Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. Now I know that you trust me, and now I know that you have not withheld your son from me. And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram behind him with its horns caught in a thicket, a bush of thistles, of thorns. And Abraham then took that ram and sacrificed it instead on the altar instead of his son Isaac. And then after they were done, father and son made their way back down to their home. And that's the story of Abraham and Isaac. It's a great story, one that if you have been in Sunday school, you have heard. Uh, You may have heard shades of this story if you never went to Sunday school, but there there it is. Uh, It's found all in Genesis chapter 22. Now, I I was convicted this week. Um... God asked me a, a pretty good question. He said, why, why, Trey, are you putting the scripture up on the screen that you want everybody to actually take their Bibles out and read for themselves? I went, oh, well, that would be a very good idea. So some of the uh, scriptures, if I jump around, those will be up on the screen, okay? But you should have your Bibles. We should be hearing pages turning. So go to Genesis 22. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, um, here. You want a Bible? Um, you, you can look around. Maybe somebody can help you. Uh, thanks, Dan, for doing that for me. Um, that would be awesome. Yeah, we, we can keep doing that. Yeah, and, and, and don't feel bad if you didn't bring it. Uh, it's never been required. But now I figure, you know what, we should probably start getting into the Word, not just up on the screen. Amen? Okay, good, 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 good. Good. If you have a problem with that, come talk to me and we'll bring you back to reality as well. (laughs) All righty. Now, this is one of those stories, by the way, that when you are, it's very awkward to tell your kids as a bedtime story. You know, yes, and God told this man to kill his son. (laughs) Um, By the way, Isaac, I've always heard, is probably about, oh, maybe 12 years old at, at this point. Why? Because if he was 13, it would not have been a sacrifice. And God probably would not have told him to actually stop. Abraham would go, oh yeah, because once they hit the teen years, you, you, know, you know how that is. But, but seriously, the story, though, does prove very troublesome for a lot of non-believers. People who want to discount the Bible, they, they refer to this story to say that the God of the Bible is this horrible, bloodthirsty deity that they would never want to follow. They would never want to believe in a God that re- would require human sacrifice. And at first glance, the story does seem to go against God's nature, the character that we read of in the Bible. In the Old Testament, God actually forbids human 
sacrifice. He, he tells his people, I do not want you to worship me like the pagans worship their gods. And while this would seem like a huge thing for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice his child, for pagans in the Middle East uh, back in the ancient days, this would not have been a big deal. This would have been, oh, Tuesday, I guess. Oh, I'm supposed to sacrifice another child. Okay. So there's something going on here that does not seem quite right. And so you have to look at it within the context of the, the entire Bible, the, the context of the entire character of God that we read of in the Bible. What is God doing here? A God that does not require human sacrifice in order for his people to come to him or to be made right with him. Why does he ask Abraham to do so, something so contradictory? Well, to see what he's up to, let's actually look at the story. Genesis 22, let's start in verse 1. It says, Some time later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and here I am, he replied. Well, okay, first of all, some time later. Later than what? Well, later in Abraham's story. Later than the whole idea of, I'm going to give you a son. But Lord, I'm old. How can I have a son? I will give you a son and I will make your descendants outnumber the stars in the sky. And Abraham believes. And then 25 years later, he actually uh, has Isaac born to Sarah. Miraculously. God does a miracle. Um, She's 90 years old. Abraham's 100 years old. This was the child of promise. And Abraham was given hope to be the father of many nations. It was now this child that was going to be used by God to test Abraham. Now, now wait a second. If God knows the condition of your heart, if God knows what we're going to do in the future, then why does God need to test Abraham? It, is it really that God doesn't know what Abraham is going to do? Is, is that why he, he's, he's putting Abraham through this test? It, it seems very unnecessary, even silly to a lot of people, for God to test Abraham's love or devotion to him. So I, I think it would be very helpful for us to clarify what the Bible means by test, when God says that he was going to test Abraham. Well, let me ask you this. Anybody know this? When gold... When you have gold ore, when it's put under acid, when, when, you put, uh, when you apply acid to gold ore, what's being determined? What's being determined? The, the, the purity of that gold, right? What, what, what's, what's dross and what's pure gold? Um, it's, it's the value that you are testing. You, you can say that the gold is being tested, tested to demonstrate its purity and its worth. So in our story today, you can say Abraham is being tested. But I, I don't believe that this was a test so that God could see what Abraham was made out of. This is a test so Abraham could see what he was made out of. What, what, what kind of faith he had in God. God already knows what kind of faith Abraham has. But it's important for Abraham to see the, 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 the level of faith, the purity of his faith in God. It's kind of like a soldier who is tested, they say, in battle. They're tested in battle. Tested for whom? For the commanding officer? No. It's tested for the soldier himself to know that he's got inside of him what it takes to go out and be a good soldier. Now, God will often test us to bring out the best in us, to burn away the dross and the impurities in our life so that we can be more like what he knows that we can be, 
so that we can be more devoted to him. The test will come so that you'll be able to understand where you are in relationship with God to test your own heart so that you can know your own heart. You see, it's easy to trust when God says he's going to give you something. It's a little bit harder when God says he's going to take something away from you. What kind of faith do you really have? I found in my experience that faith is not really real until I have to demonstrate it in some way. I have to actually show, demonstrate my faith. Until then, it's kind of a nice saying to put on a coffee mug or, or a t-shirt. Just, just words until I'm tested. We continue on. Um, let's see here. 20, okay. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. And early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Okay. Here for the very first time, folks, the word love is used in the Bible. Very first time. Um, Take Isaac, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Your only son whom you love. Boy, doesn't that echo John 3.16? For God so loved that he gave his one and only son. Interesting. Well, what about Ishmael, somebody might say. Because part of the story that I didn't tell you was this. Once God promised Abraham to be the father of many, many, many people... Abraham looked at himself, looked at Sarah, realized she couldn't have children. She was already very, very old. And so, obviously, in their minds, God needed some help. God needed help. So, oh, you must mean that I should have a baby with my wife's maidservant. Oh, that that must be what you mean. And so they do that. And Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, is born. And God says, no. That's not what I meant. Now, I will take care of Ishmael because he is of your seed, Abraham. But that's not what I meant. I meant that you will have a baby through Sarah, your wife. And it will be a miracle that I will do, says, says the Lord. And, and, and so, yes, Abraham does have another son named Ishmael. But Ishmael is actually sent away from the camp by this time. Uh, there was some uh, tension between Sarah and her maidservant, and, and, and when Isaac was born, and Ishmael, and so uh, Sarah didn't want them in the camp anymore, so Abraham actually sent Hagar and, and Ishmael away, and God protected them, took care of them, in, in, a, in a really cool story as well. But so at this point, the only son that Abraham has within the camp is Isaac, and he loves his son because, not just because he came from his his seed, but because this was the child of promise. This was the one that God said through him, I will give you, make you a, a father of many, many nations and I will bless this world. So, so it says, take your only son whom you love. Yes, it's a relational kind of love, but it's also a covenantal kind of love because this is the way that Abraham is trusting in God. He says, now I want you to go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. In other words, Abraham, you have trusted me throughout this whole time, and now you have the son that I promised. So uh, tell me, Abraham, is your son more important? Is that promise more important to you than your relationship with me? 
That's the question that every one of us has to be asked from time to time. When it comes to trusting in God who provides, do we love the giver or do we love the gift? Which one do we love more? Oh, I, I love it when God gives me gifts. That's great. But when he takes those gifts away, do I still love the giver rather than just the gift? So what's going through Abraham's mind during this three-day journey? A burnt offering. Really? I don't even let Isaac go out in the sun without 3,000 SPF sunscreen. God, you want me to burn him now? You, you want him to burn? What, what am I going to tell his mother? How, how will you fulfill your promise, God, if I kill this, this boy that you said will be my hope of your promise? Fulfilled. Well, Whatever is going through his mind, we do know based on later statements that he will make, that he had enough faith for God to do the impossible. In fact, if you continue in the next verses, you'll see that Abraham does express confidence in God's kindness. Verse 4, On the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. <laughs> Stay here. We will go worship, and we will come back. We. We. Okay, now is this some kind of snow job? Is he, is he trying to establish an alibi and a, and a cover-up? Is, is he lying? I don't think so. He, here's one of those statements that show me that, that Abraham trusts God. That, even, that, that, that God would not let Isaac be killed. And even if he was, somehow God would raise him back to life. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we read this. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Listen to this. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So you see, in hindsight, we see that Abraham was climbing this mountain by faith, not by feelings. Boy, inside must have just been a, a storm going on, all this turmoil. I, I know that I trust God, but I, I love my son, I, and, and I, I want to hold on to this promise, but now God is testing this and, and, and wanting me to give up this promise. So many things are going on inside. But he's traveling up the mountain of the Lord that can be trusted. Verse 5. Um, verse 6, sorry. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself self carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. God will provide. That's what Abraham in confidence said to his son I think that's probably a statement of hope as much as it is a statement of faith. Sometimes you and I have nothing but that promise that God has given to us to hold on to. A promise that God will do something eventually. God has promised, and you and I just have to trust. How? It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter how. God will make a way. God will be the way. It's not Abraham's responsibility to figure out how God's going to do it. It's Abraham's responsibility to trust and obey. We continue on, verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied again. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, there it is, the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The mountain of the Lord. This is an amazing story. But this is the part of the story that strikes me as most important the ram. Because once God sees Abraham's obedience, he not only stops Abraham from killing Isaac, but he then provides an acceptable offering in that ram whose horns have been caught up in the thorn bush. So what's the point of the story? Oh, I did a lot of research this week to see uh, what other people have said the point of the story is. And, and some people like to, to focus in on, on, on the, the idea that the Lord provides whatever we need. That we should just trust the Lord to provide for our, our clothing and our shelter and our food. And, and is that true? Absolutely, that's true. But I don't believe that that's the main point of this story. Yes, the Lord provided a ram for Abraham, so he will supply all of our needs as well. He he supplied a way out of Egypt. He supplied a way through the Red Sea. He he supplied manna in the desert and and, and water from the rock for when the Israelites were thirsty. Jesus told us that we can ask the Lord to provide for us our daily bread. Paul tells us that God will supply all of our needs. But I don't believe that that's the point of the story. Some people believe that the main point of the story is that we're called to give everything in worship. Everything. That we don't withhold anything from our Lord in worship. Sometimes God will ask the unthinkable and wants us, like Abraham, to be willing to not withhold anything from him. That's a very true statement as well. This whole idea about whole life stewardship, not just the 10%, but the 100% belonging to the Lord. There's definitely something about worship in here, and you can make a, a, a good sermon out of that. I don't believe that that's the main point. God says, Abraham, you have not withheld your son from me. This is what I believe the main point is. Abraham, you have not withheld your son from me. So right then and there, God demonstrates that he, Jehovah God, will not withhold his son from you. Abraham did not withhold his son from God, and God will not withhold his son from mankind. This is where Jesus is seen in the story. Many of you have heard the term Jehovah Jireh. That's the name that Abraham chose for this place. We translate it, the Lord will provide. Although the literal Hebrew is the Lord sees. The Hebrew idea behind that is the Lord could see forward to what was truly needed. Therefore, he could provide for that need. Does that make sense? So that's why we say the Lord provides. But it's really the Lord sees what is needed. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. There's that mountain of the Lord again. 
That phrase in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. And as I said before, that these guys were actually prophesying about the return from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Micah 4.1 says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills and people will stream to it. Well, that's easy enough to understand. Uh, the, the, the prophecy was that the Jews would come back and rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. But if you jump now to the next chapter, Micah 5, looking at verse 2 and 4 and 5, you'll read this. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small along among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Now, folks, not all of this prophecy was fulfilled when those exiles came back from Babylon. There's something that the prophets foresaw much farther into the future. Something altogether different, something significant that would take place on the, mount, sorry, on the mountain of the Lord as God would provide for a need that he saw. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. What will be provided? Food? Water? Shelter? No, something much more critical. Well, let me ask you this. What is mankind's greatest need? There are three scriptures to consider. Genesis 3, 6. I was afraid, Adam said to the Lord, so I hid. Or Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. Or Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. Folks, every conflict that we face, every struggle in life, every hurt finds its roots deeply embedded in our spiritual death. We were born into it. We are cursed because of it. We are powerless against it. Like Isaac, we have been bound. We lay on the altar of our sinful nature and the knife has been raised. That's our greatest need right there, folks. We need salvation. We need peace between us and a holy God. If you go back to Micah 5, 5, he says, and he will be their peace. Folks, that peace between us and God can only come when God provides for us. 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. And he did this for us while we were still his enemies. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, this is what God is up to in this story. Was this merely a test to see how much Abraham loved God? No, no, I, I think this was a demonstration of how much God loved Abraham and how he was going to go about blessing the entire world through the seed of Abraham, who would one day, in an eerie parallel, would make his way up a mountain in the same region with a heavy piece of wood laid on his back as well the instrument of torture and his death, laid before him by his father. Oh, whoa. Did you see that one coming? All of a sudden, you see the parallels there? Can you see Jesus there? God showing Abraham the full plan 
of redemption. No wonder Jesus would tell the Jewish leaders, your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. That comes from John chapter 8. Abraham rejoiced at the appearance of the substitute that would take the place of his son. He was glad for the plan of God to give then his son to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind there on the mountain of the Lord. Calvary, just outside of Jerusalem. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord indeed will provide. The term that theologians use is substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary because it was not us who had to face the penalty of our sin, but it was Jesus who took on our sin at the cross, dying once and for all. And atonement because through his death, the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, through his death, our sins have been forgiven. We stand justified, made clean through the blood of the Lamb. As I prepared for today's sermon, I realized that this was an amazing communion meditation in and of itself. This is what these emblems mean. When we take the the cup uh, uh, and the bread and we see that this is a precious, precious sacrifice. Not, Not just a martyr's death, but a plan that God had all the way back in the days of Abraham and Isaac where God would provide the substitute for your life. Life for life, blood for blood. A lamb slain in your place so that you might be righteous in front of God. So right now, I, I want to pray, and then I'm, we're going to have some music. And I would just ask you to, uh, from where you are, if you have not already gotten your, your communion elements, they're in the back there. Just take a, a moment of time to, to take those elements and to, to uh, thank God for that substitute that we saw at Calvary so long ago that was foreshadowed by the mountain that Isaac was going to be sacrificed, but a substitute showed up instead. Let let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving your son, sacrificing of your own nature so that we might become righteous, so that our sins can be taken care of and the penalty of our sin would be paid for. And I thank you so much, God, that you have then offered forgiveness to all who call on your name. These emblems that we take today in communion, we do remember you by the bread representing your body that was given from heaven as you took on flesh and lived among us, and and the juice representing the blood, the precious blood that was spilled out. God, thank you so much for that plan of redemption, of salvation that you gave to us in that substitute so long ago on the mountain of the Lord. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.